Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast for the very last time this week from Patrick Maguire. Matt Chorley is back on Monday, but we have a cracking show for my send-off in the meantime. We're going to be talking political diaries for our big thing today, but in the meantime, it's time for our columnist panel. No James Versailles today, so it was Melanie Reid and Matthew Syed. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Friday, so we've got Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Patrick. Lovely to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. good. Not too chilly up there? A little bit, but um, uh, bragging rights, quite high at the moment. You're used to it. You're made of sterner stuff than, yeah. uh, than us down south. No James for size, so it's Matthew side instead. Morning, Matthew. Matthew's... A very good morning. How are you, uh, Patrick? Melanie, great great to connect. I'm just conscious of the fact that you know, we write for the same newspaper and I don't think we've ever met the three of us, have we? <laughs> No, 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 no we haven't. It's strange. This, this, people talk about office and water cooler conversations. I only ever seem to talk to Times and, and Sunday Times colleagues on, on Times Radio, which is lovely, by the way. That, that's what it's, that's what it's here for. That. That's what it's here for. You know, it's for, for, for you know, junior stuff like me to be in the presence of luminaries like uh, Melanie Reid and Matthew Side. <laughs> but, but, but Patrick said with such irony that the, the compliment <laughs> didn't, didn't land. But, but, <laughs> not irony. That's just, that's just my tone. I should say, Matthew, uh, not to bore listeners, we actually um, are much younger than you but I think we were taught A-level economics by the same woman. What? Yeah. Mary, Mary McDonough, do you remember her? You went to maiden early school? No, she, by then she had moved to a sixth form college in Southport. Oh, you're kidding, that's so interesting. She used Southport. to talk, yeah, yeah she what? used to talk about you a lot. You've got to be so. So I, I actually dropped out of my. I, I should perhaps shouldn't admit this of A levels to focus on ping pong. But she taught social economics, and she was an ama- amazing teacher because it was a you know comprehensive school, and it you know not many of us were that interested in social economics at the time. But she really she was fantastic. And what what what's the odds you think of her listening to this conversation at the moment, Patrick? In in that one in a million shot, Mary, thank you. You did a fantastic job. Well, actually, she uh, I, I, I sometimes see her on the train uh, in Southport. So if I see her again, I'll say, uh, I was speaking to Matthew's side the other day, and she probably won't remember me because I was a very, I was a feckless A-level economics student. But anyway, she spoke about you a lot. Uh, but we're not here to talk about uh, mine and Matthew's A-level economics teacher. Uh, we are here to talk about uh, the day's big stories, the biggest of which, of course, is strikes, a new wave of strikes. The government is bringing in the army, who are not allowed to strike, of course, to fill the gaps left by border force uh, officials uh, when they walk out later this month. Some people might think, uh, Melanie, if the army can't walk out, the police can't walk out, uh, why should paramedics or the people whose job it is to keep our borders secure uh, be able to do so and 
have uh, soldiers Christmas leave cancelled? I think it's isn't it about the psychology of the of, of the, the people that do the job? I think you totally misread what kind of people do these jobs, and if you start to put a, a, a strike ban onto a job that is about um, caring for human beings in, in need, I think you start to really upset and 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 sort of misinterpret the people. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole thing about the NHS uh, paramedics striking is, uh, it's, it's, they don't do this because, they really don't do this because they want to. Um, I think, I think uh, they've been forced into it. It's, yeah, hard one. It's a hard one, but I'm very against bans for the caring the caring uh, professions. What do you think, Matthew? Do you think um, this uh, bout of strike action is going to inspire another round of anti-union legislation? I mean, that's the plan um, that's the plan in uh, in number 10, but do you think uh, they'd be justified in restricting the right to strike for some of these sectors? I'm I'm uh, cautious about it. I've got severe doubts. Uh, Melanie articulated brilliantly. But of course, then the question becomes is it fair for the soldiers to be brought in as a backstop because they they had as i understand it patrick they had their leave cancelled last year at christmas mm. some will be off on a tour of duty there was a very interesting comment uh from a times reader the wife of a of a of a serving uh, a soldier who missed a christmas two, two years in a row because of this use of soldiers as a as a backstop for effectively critical workers who do have the right to strike. And of course, the, the wider context of all this is the economic crisis, which means that all of us or most of us are going to become poorer. And therefore, if one does accede to the entirely understandable requests for, for higher pay and inflation matching pay uh, for public sector workers, it just means we have higher public debt that we will leave to future generations. It can be the easy option, but also fundamentally unjust. This is one of those invidious problems, I think, and the trade-offs are very difficult to, to, to manage well and fairly. And what about the impact on, on, on you two? I'm interested if your, your festive plans have been disrupted at all. I'm trying to get a train back up north next weekend, which is proving to be a total nightmare. But I was just wondering, you know, it's not about, it's not necessarily, well, to a large extent, it is about the disruption. That's the point of the industrial action, um, is what Mick Lynch and others would say. It's to demonstrate what happens when their labour is withdrawn. But mentally, you know, have you had to change your plans at all because of uh, looming strikes? Personally, no, because I don't tend to move around too much. I'm I'm fairly sort of mm. housebound to to a large extent, but uh, it will affect members of my family. That uh, it could potentially affect members of my family who are coming home for Christmas. Um, but I mean, if you know, if I can see the other side so clearly, um, Patrick, because you know, you know, I'm dependent on 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 uh, nurses and social carers to get up get me up in the morning for Christmas, and if they're not paid well, if they're not if they're not um, recompensed for the amazing job they do, and at the moment they're not, certainly the social carers, then, you know, what am I going to do? So it, it, it is such a complicated, extraordinarily complicated um, dynamic. And what about, what about you, Matthew? Is your Christmas looking any different as a result of this industrial action? Well, that's a good question, but I haven't thought it through. They're, they're coming to ours, as, as they did last year, uh, the in-laws, um, so whether they're not able to attend, of course, we'll be very disappointed if they don't come. 
Um, so we're hoping. That, I'm, I'm smiling a little bit because I was going to say, is that a Les Dawson there. style in <laughs> well, a reflection exactly. on your in-laws? There's a lot of people coming, Patrick. Frankly, but we we love a we love a family Christmas. So hoping very much that that, that they won't be too disrupted. Uh, Labour are also out and about this morning, uh, trying to grasp the nettle of a very difficult policy issue. They're talking about fast tracking uh, asylum claims. They uh, say are clearly unfounded. Um, it's not a million miles from what the government wants to do. Uh, Melanie, when you hear the Labour Party going headlong into issues that they've previously sort of shrunk from a little bit, they want to be cautious, they don't necessarily want to reopen old wounds and uh, expose their vulnerabilities, do you detect a, a new assertiveness, a new uh, boldness on the part of Keir Starmer and his team? Do you think they are uh, looking increasingly confident? I think they are. I mean, you know, I mean, there's an argument they could just keep quiet and let the Tories destroy themselves uh, until the election. But, uh, do you know, can I be can I be a, a little bit cynical and say there aren't many votes to be lost by being hard on the Albanians? Um, you know, you know, criminal gangs, boo, hiss. Um, it's probably quite a, self, a safe bet to step into this uh, because, you know, 12,000 Albanians staying in hotels at our expense, at our expense, you know, the majority of people are going to say, well, this is a good thing to, uh, to, 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 uh, to act on them. Stone. Uh, Matthew, um, what, what do you think? What do you think of this uh, policy idea from Labour? I, I find the topic of, of refugees one of the most surreal in, in contemporary Western politics. Um, so it's difficult to know how to how to answer this without without going a bit. I mean, the, there are many uh, tens of millions of refugees in the world. Mm. It will probably rise to quarter to half a billion. Uh, we have a legal and binding obligation uh, to provide uh, succor to refugees because we signed the 1951 uh, convention, but only if they make it to our territory. And so we make it almost impossible for them to get here. Uh, so it's a it's a hugely hypocritical policy that that we have in place, and it seems to me the only way to, you know, the only way, frankly, to do this sensibly is to agree with other international allies to amend the convention, because mm. otherwise we act in the letter of the convention whilst completely flouting its spirit. And all of these uh, tweaks that uh, uh, Yvette Cooper is making will make no fundamental difference to the problem, which is a big problem for the West, because. These borders will be weaponized by the autocratic axis. China has no has a has a net outflow of uh, refugees, and they're more than willing to foment geopolitical disorder as a way of inciting difficulties for for Western nations. This is a big, big, uh, fundamental problem that we have not yet grasped. It is a big problem and it's unclear whether uh, Labour's headline-grabbing announcement this morning, as you say, Matthew and Melanie, is uh, anything but an attempt to uh, to whip up a bit of uh, a bit of political capital. Uh, Britain is facing something of an Arctic chill. But do you know where the coldest place in the UK is? Melanie Reid, it's, uh, it's not your back garden, is it? No, no, I think we were only minus three last night. So um, no, no, nothing really, really tough um, to complain about. Matthew, Saeed, where was, your, where was the uh, mercury in your thermometer, uh, figuratively speaking? <laughs> I drove my son to school. Oh, there's definitely ice on the on the car window this morning. What is it? I'm just looking at the app. Do you, do you use this app? It tells you the exact temperature in the, in the air. It's currently two degrees where I am. Two degrees, positively Caribbean where you are, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> well, the coldest place in the UK 
is a small hamlet in Sutherland in the Highland region of Northern Scotland called Altnahara. And I'm pleased to be joined by its MP, Jamie Stone, a Liberal Democrat for Kaitness, Sutherland and Easter Ross, uh, which includes uh, that hamlet. Uh, morning, Jamie. Good morning to you, Patrick. Uh, how many layers have you got on this morning? Uh, let me just count. One, two, three, four. I'm wearing a, a Lancaster bomber flying jacket on top. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, I'd expect nothing less from you. Uh, you know, you cook quite a dash in the Commons Chamber. I've actually, I'm actually reliably informed that you're uh, Boris Johnson's. You were Boris Johnson's favourite opposition MP. Such is uh, rep- your reputation as a uh, parliamentary raconteur and uh, and character. So there you go. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a serious question at play there, isn't it? Because uh, isn't there? Because um, when the temperatures are as low as they are, uh, which is which is how low? How low did it get overnight? It, it, it's gone way, way down. And, you know, I mean, I want to make two points, Patrick, serious ones, which is that um, 63% of households in my constituency are not connected to mains gas. And the 200 quid cash, which, by the way, we won't get until January, is just not enough. We're, we're facing bills of about 1,200. The other one, I'm just sorry to go on about this, is that the roads are so dash dangerous. And we've got, there's been a decision taken that mums will no longer give birth in Caithness, have to travel a 208-mile round trip to Inverness to give birth. And that is just desperate. Can you imagine? Your, your labour started, you're in an ambulance, and, and on these roads at this time of year, are you kidding? And so how... And this is, you know, this is a problem when the temperatures are, temperatures are you know, fairly normal, but when they're minus... How low did they get last night? I think, I think they were down to minus eight. But, of course, out the higher it goes way into the 20s and sometimes the 30s. It's unbelievable. It really is very, very bad news indeed. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just not easy to get about. And the other thing, of course, I asked my, my good lady this morning, what do you think? I should mention, she said, mention people slipping on pavements and, and, and the ice and uh, the Asda car park outside my home this morning. It was like a bottle, as we say in Scotland, an, icing, an ice ring. Quite extraordinary. And, and do you think, uh, what practical steps can, uh, can the government provide in bouts of extreme weather like this beyond the obvious gritting the roads and making sure the infrastructure is, is, re- is resilient enough? Well, I think, you know, Patrick, I think all good governments of whatever colour will be fair-minded about this. And where you've got a bit of Britain, which is a whole heap colder than anywhere else, I think maybe they could look at, you know, some sort of tailored package to help people get through it all. After all, no one should be disadvantaged because of where they live. And, um, you know, it's not as if the population of Southerners is huge. It's not. And I, I do hope, I did raise it with Rishi, my very first question to him uh, just after he became Prime Minister. And he, he did nod and sort of agree with me. So I do hope that I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on an open door with this one. But put it this way, you know, I'm an awkward so-and-so. I'm not going to shut up until I get something. Well, uh, thanks very much for not shutting up with us this morning. Jamie Stone, Liberal Democrat MP for the coldest place in the UK, out the Harrow in the Highlands in northern Scotland, where it reached uh, minus eight on Jamie's uh, thermometer last night, so much so that he's wearing four layers. Melanie, you know, as someone who lives in Scotland, that must have all sounded rather familiar. Yeah, I I just like to say I've got four layers and I've got two heaters on in my bedroom, cool. in my in my not my bedroom, so my office here. So two heaters and four layers. There's a serious another serious point here, and that is that our housing stock um, is nowhere near ready for uh, to deal with with bad weather, cold weather. Uh, we have we have a housing stock in the UK um, and in Scotland which just does not. Um, Pass muster with uh, with with bad weather, cold weather. 
and, and, and Matthew, this is, uh, you know, as we face more bouts of extreme weather, I'm not sure you call this extreme weather just yet, but it's certainly very cold. As, you know, the extremes of weather become more, uh, more regular here in Britain, um, you know, future-proofing the UK's infrastructure is another one of those big, knotty, uh, long-term questions that governments tend to put in what you might call the too-difficult box. And uh, it's the UK's resilience that suffers as a result, isn't it? Gosh, that's a big one, Patrick. Yes, no, you're you're quite right, and uh, it is a. Di- I mean, it's it's one of those systems problems where you need to get all of the components aligned, and that's something which very recently democratic governments in the West have done very poorly indeed. Um, the the other thing, I, Melanie's right about the housing stock. Well, one thing that does seem to be very clear and is a consensus amongst energy experts, regardless of where they stand on some of the more detailed questions is is the importance of insulation, the long-term cost benefits of insulating houses and saving the dissipation of heat. Um, so that's something that I think we could invest in sensibly um, and and see a long-term return. Well, we, we will obviously be considering those uh, very serious questions in due course. But in the meantime, there's a small matter of a uh, football match tomorrow uh, to get our teeth into England versus France in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Melanie, will it be on in your house? <laughs> of course it will be, yes. Uh, very much so. Um, listen, I'm uneasy talking about football with you because you're a Liverpool supporter and I grew up <laughs> supporting Everton. Oh um, yeah, I know, I know. I can, I know. I can so, forgive you. Um, but I, I'm, I, a lot of my family are French and uh, I, I, I'm very torn and I, I'm going to say a very, very girly thing here and that is I'm looking forward to it because the best games are when you want both sides to win, you know? <laughs> you can really enjoy it because you're not heartbroken either way. You're not too passionate. Matthew, you're a uh, you're a student of uh, a student, a professor, really, of uh, of high performance uh, in elite athletes. Um, will you be looking forward either way to uh, you know, regardless of patriotic loyalties, to watching uh, Kylian Mbappe tear it up? Well, oh, he's a fantastic player. He's a big risk for us. But it's interesting what Melanie said that you enjoy a game more when you want both teams to win, and therefore you don't get disappointed. I've always felt the other way when you are absolutely completely committed to one of the teams the excitement levels are just off the scale and the only way one can really feel euphoria for example when England wins if they win which I hope they do is if you're willing to countenance the possibility of complete heartache if they lose I I don't think that the yin and the yang of human psychology I don't think you get the real ecstatic highs Unless you're willing to tolerate the lows, it's the contrast that that makes for the the, the roller coaster ride of football fandom. Oh, it's, it's why I don't support Scotland. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't, in... like, you don't want the, you don't want the low. No, well, can't you spe- stand it. Spe- spend too much time having to countenance the lows with Scotland, I believe, Melanie. <laughs> on that, on that, I'll leave you before you uh, before you have the chance to come back. That was Melanie Reid and Matthew Side with today's columnist panel. Remember, you can read both of them in The Times and Sunday Times. Just pick up a copy of the paper or head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to get yourself a digital subscription. Now it's time to talk political diaries. This week, Matt Hancock joined the long list of politicians who published a diary. Not really a diary in Matt Hancock's case. So for today's big thing, we spoke to Sir Alan Duncan, author of a set of diaries himself. He's the former Conservative minister a literary agent, and a legendary political journalist. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Alan Clark, Richard Crossman, Giles Brandreth, Tony Benn, Sasha Swire, Chips Channon, Chris Mullin, Woodrow Wyatt, Robert Kilroy Silk, Alistair Campbell, Barbara Castle. Have you spotted the pattern yet? Well, if, like me, you're a fan of a good political diary, or a not-so-good one, then it won't have escaped you that a certain someone made their own attempt to join this Hall of Fame this week. I want to break free. Whoa! I want to break free. I think we all want to break free of Matt Hancock for a while. And his pandemic diaries, rather confusingly and not uncontroversially written retrospectively, aren't getting the best of reviews. But their release has sparked a bit of a question. Uh, what makes a good political diary? And in an age of 24 hours and uh, 24 hour news and social media, is this unique literary and historical form dying? Plenty to discuss then. I caught up with Sir Alan Duncan, the former Conservative MP and minister, uh, who published his own diaries last year. In the thick of it, the private diaries of a minister tells the story of Sir Alan's access to the heart of government from the eve of the Brexit referendum in 2016 to the UK's eventual exit from the EU and features his waspish views on Boris Johnson, Theresa May and many, many other Conservative politicians uh, you will recognise. I spoke to Sir Alan earlier this week and I started by asking him that trickiest of questions. How long he'd been keeping a diary, whether he wanted it to be published and why. Um, I actually started in 2010 when I first became a minister. So I've actually got diaries that cover all the uh, international development years of the coalition government from sort of 2010 to 14-ish Um when I stopped being a minister and then I sort of started again and I became a minister again. Uh, your second question is actually the really interesting one, which is why on earth do you do it? And that I think determines the extent to which they are sort of seen as good or bad diaries, because for me, it was just to keep a record so that I didn't forget things and 
things didn't just get warped by the passage of time, but also to, as I put it in the uh, introduction, to rage at the page. You get it out of your system by writing it all down. So mine were not designed to be published. Uh, that's why I'm not going to publish the development ones. But because the Brexit ones were uh, covering such a period of turmoil, they were sort of interesting in their own right to some people, even though they weren't designed uh, for a reading public. And is that why, uh, you know, your diaries um, were described as, as waspish by some reviewers? Um, do you th is that why they are full of so many, um, you know, unforgettable lines about your colleagues? Because actually, in public, you're a minister, you're on the payroll, you have to maintain a basic level of discretion, even um, with the government in the state of indiscipline it was in then. So you were getting out all your anger and your frustrations on the page, as you say. Well, that's right. And, and that meant you could uh, keep your composure uh, in your working life and keep sort of measured and polite and well-mannered, which I like to think I largely was. Um, but I don't think that my sort of, what do you call them, expostulations, sort of, <laughs> sort of ventings of fury were in any way um, sort of just, just mine. I mean, a lot of people, I think, will have felt the same way and often do in politics because politics is sort of civil war without guns it's it's a way of reconciling deeply held differences both across the uh, house of commons and along the same side and as we've seen over the last you know couple of years i mean the conservative party is deeply split and i think the animosities are are, are deeper within the conservative party than perhaps um between the conservative party and the official opposition um were you a reader of political diaries before you started keeping your own? Had you read, for instance, uh, Alan Clark, Chips Channon, uh, perhaps not Tony Benn, unless you're interested in knowing thine enemy and Tony Benn's uh, much drier than yours. Um, uh, would you, uh, had you had you read them? Uh, I dipped into Tony Benn's and the Crossman Diaries, of course, were the first ones, really, which hit the news uh, uh, from politicians within my own lifetime because there was a great argument about them being published also barbara castles i mean there's mm. quite a an extensive genre of, of, of diarists uh, on both sides of the, the house of commons uh, chip channon hadn't been published at the time and you know all praise to simon heffer for his three massive volumes of brilliantly edited chips channon diaries um alan clark of course you know everyone who's remotely interested in politics and enjoys waspish wit uh, can't but read um all or some of Alan Clark's diaries. So, yeah, and actually, what, 40 years ago, I found the manuscript diaries of a, a Victorian uh, politician uh, who I hope to um, perhaps publish myself one day. Uh, they're out of copyright and are fascinating about Gladstone and Rosebery and um, the politics of the time. Did you lose any friends after the uh, after the serialisation in the papers and the uh, and the you know people went to uh, Waterstones in, uh, in in Charing Cross to to check the index? Did you get any angry messages from colleagues? <laughs> no, none at all. Actually, um, as I say, the nice people liked it, <laughs> so I wasn't too bothered about the others. Um, you know, there were one or two people who said, you know, uh, I shouldn't have done it, but I mean. Um, uh, I didn't intend to, but then um, a literary agent came to me and said, have you ever thought of writing a, a book about Brexit? And I said, well, as it happens, I, I kept a daily diary. And he went, what? <laughs> Let's have a look at those. And th that's really how, how it all started. Um, 
so I, I i i don't think i lost any friends really and um did i settle some scores well yes perhaps i did a bit and i think that that's no bad thing because you know a book coming out a few years later is not the same as the, as the many many politicians who leak and brief at mm. the time and i never briefed against boris or or, or you know the prime minister anything like that um so I just got on with my job. So if I was hacked off by something, I just sit down and scribble. And the methodology is important. You, uh, two or three things are important. You, you, you've got to write it at the time or mm. very quickly. I mean, perhaps two or three days worth, I write up at the weekend from notes. And just occasionally, I was so busy that the, the page wasn't very complete. It just had staccato entries of you know saw fred saw bert saw the prime minister boom 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 without much comment um and the golden rule is don't change anything afterwards i mean don't rewrite your thoughts even if you're slightly ashamed of them i did tone down a few swear words but i thought that was just decent for the purposes of publication and of course it has to go through as matt hancock's will have done will have had to go through the cabinet office process of scrutiny to make sure you're not disclosing anything that is against the ministerial rules, cabinet uh, conversations verbatim, for instance, or something that would offend a foreign government, which is inappropriate. So, you know, there are rules which, which, which govern what can appear in the printed page. And would that have been Sue Gray at the time, running the uh, green ink over your, uh, over your manuscript, <laughs> Alan? No, um, she, she was a slightly different bit of the uh, um, cabinet office, that there's a little unit of two or three people who, who scrutinise all these publications, uh, d different people, but, you know, roughly in the same cabinet office firmament. Uh, and they were very good, very fair. I mean, I, <laughs> I stuck in a couple of things that I didn't want to appear in the book, which I knew would be scribbled out. So um, the, they got scribbled out and I ended up with what I wanted anyway. <laughs> and... Um... You mentioned Matt Hancock and you mentioned the importance of method. You know, I think back to, obviously, Tony Benn used to speak it all into a tape recorder. Barbara Castle uh, would write as many as 1,500 words after every day, um, longhand and then, shorthand rather, and then write it up at a typewriter on the weekend. Uh, Alistair Campbell was the same. Um, do you think, though, you mentioned Matt Hancock too, um, do you think that to call his pandemic diaries, which... He and Isabel Oakeshott, his co-writer, have been very open about the fact they're written retrospectively. Um, do you think he's got a bit of a cheek calling them diaries when they are not uh, the diaries the, of the kind you wrote, of the kind the great political diarists wrote? Uh, yes, I think a diary does mean that it's written contemporaneously. And uh, to be honest, I, I mean, I, I haven't read it. I've read some of the extracts, of course, in the papers, but I, I didn't realise they were not um, written at the time. So, yes, that's a sort of slightly faux uh, description of what they are. Um, a day-by-day -day account would be a more accurate description. Um, but, uh, and, and of course, what is the source he was drawing on uh, in order to log his opinions and his feelings each and every day? Well, he might well have had access to his ministerial appointments diary, which would say who he met and everything. Um, there would have been various letters, exchanges, emails, texts, but to be able to say that they were absolutely what he thought at the time, I think is impossible uh, to justify because your recollection can change within two weeks. Uh, so busy is a, a minister, particularly in the middle of a national crisis. So I, um, uh, mm, 
it, it, it does make me think about quite how accurate they are. And I, I can so you won't be reading them cover to cover and checking for Alan Duncan in the index. Um, well, I don't think I'll be in the index anyway because um, uh, you'd obviously I, left Parliament by then. I'd left Parliament. That's right. So I was I was locked down and working on working on my own diaries. And and, and, and can I yeah. ask you on on method? Did you would you sort of get home, write them longhand, and then type them up, or did the process of typing and editing only come? come afterwards uh slightly different from that I, I what i did is i had my ministerial appointments card and a blank piece of paper in my pocket at all you know times of the day mm. so if i bumped into someone or, or if i had dinner in the house of Commons dining room i'd make a quick note of who was at the table something like that and, and perhaps a little um trigger word to um uh prompt in my memory what the conversations were about but what I did was I carried a memory stick all the time. And so be it at home or on the plane or, or the train or something, I'd stick it in the laptop. And what I would do was every day as far as possible or as soon as I could afterwards, uh, tap it into uh, the laptop on that memory stick. And so I had a memory stick for each year. And obviously I'd backed up the copies and things. But it, it, it was put straight away into um, a Word doc as I was going along, which made it so much easier, of course, for uh, publishing, editing and all that kind of stuff. Well, that was Sir Alan Duncan, the former Conservative minister and author of In the Thick of It, The Private Diaries of a Minister. But how can you tell when it's any good? And indeed, if any MPs and ministers are listening to this, I know plenty of them uh, do as a matter of course, how do you get them published? Well, I'm joined down the line by Martin Redfern, Literary Agent and Executive Director of North Bank Talent. I should declare an interest, Martin, until recently, uh, was my agent. Good morning, Martin. Morning, Patrick. Your perspective then from the literary world, you've approached this from two angles. You've been a you've been an editor, soon to be an editor again, and you've been an agent. Yep. So you've edited plenty. Uh, you've sold, uh, most notably, Alan Duncan's um, uh, diaries. Um what would, what do you look out for with both hats on? Um, I think um, obviously the the profile of the authors incredibly important. Um, uh, you know, Alan had been a senior minister. Um, there are various big beasts in politics who you know the reading public are going to want to read their story. Um, I think um, what particularly with a diary, you're just looking for genuine insights um, into the day-to-day -day life of the minister and the workings of government, something that you, you're not going to get from the everyday Westminster reporting. Um, and I, I mean, in the case of Alan, I, re I remember the, uh, I'd heard a rumour that he was writing diaries and I just thought they're going to be good. So when, when I first started reading, you know, the initial entries, I think the first entry was January the 1st, 2016 and he's describing having a terrible hangover in mystique and i thought right this this there's going to be a sort of patina of kind of glamour to these diaries as well as the kind of uh genuine insights of you know uh working in the government department um, and, and you want a bit of that so, don't you you want a bit of the human frailty you want a bit of the personality alan clark's diaries brilliant for that. Tony Benz too, in, in amongst all the, the very dry recounting of all the minutiae of 
left-wing meetings, you get those flashes of humanity Absolutely. where he talks about how much he loves his wife, Caroline, and his children and, and those sorts of reflections. You want a bit of both, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I was just, uh, I mean, I was just rereading the uh, Alan Clark entry when he's, he's um, accused of being drunk at the dispatch box. And it, you know, it is absolutely hilarious. It's a brilliant piece of political theatre, but also just a kind of humorous writing. It's an incredibly funny, uh, it, it's just an incredibly funny passage. And I think you, you, you want that degree of self-deprecation, I think, well, you want to see the kind of human side of politician, which, um, I mean, let's face it, most of these diaries come out once they've left office. Mm. Or indeed, um, in some cases, when, they, when they've when they died. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 it's, and finally, you get to kind of see the human side of, of the politician who's been given the kind of politician's answers for years and years when, you know, when questioned. So I think that's the, that's the kind of the greatness of the, of the, of the political diary form. Um, for me, it's the it, it remains kind of the purest form of political writing because it's, you, you get the greatest insights of all. And, um, and the, the important they've got to say at, at the end of the day, as Alan says, exactly. And that's the key difference with a memoir, isn't it? We'll come on to Matt Hancock in, in just a moment, but obviously, uh, you've edited plenty of memoirs. You edited uh, Peter Mandelson's autobiography, most yeah. notably. Um, what would you say the key difference between those two forms is? Um, because, you know, there are brilliant examples of, of both genres, but what sets them apart? Um, I think the memoir will always be, to some extent, the, the, the politicians setting out their record of their, their time in government. And, I mean, it's, it's not like the old days where, you know, every, every departing minister from the Thatcher government would, would publish a memoir and also, a, you know, famously boring but there's, there's an extent to which a memoir is a slightly more kind of stately affair I think than the, than, than the immediacy of the diary um, you're also you know with a memoir you're going to have to wade through the early years and the salad days at Oxford and all that kind of stuff as well before you kind of get on to the the meat of of their time in government I mean that that's for me why the the, the, the best of the three volumes of Clark diaries is the, is the one when he's a minister mm. from Eighty three to ninety, because he's he's got that kind of proximity to power, and I think that's that's what you really want to read about as a you know as an interested political reader. Yes, it's the sort of proximity to power, but also a degree of distance, which means they can be candid in a way that someone right in the thick of it, or like a junior minister like say Alan Clark and Chris Mullin, uh, they have a degree yeah. of distance, but they still can be a, a little bit candid. Uh, just to talk about the reason uh, we're having this discussion, Matt Hancock, his diaries, his pandemic diaries, aren't contemporaneous. They were written retrospectively as an editor, as an agent. Um, do you think he's got a bit of a cheek? Do you think that's justifiable? Um, I. I, I can see why the publisher's done it that way, um, but it, I would have to agree with, with with Alan just now that it doesn't. Um, uh, are they are the co-written, you know, entries written long after the event? Just I don't know. It it it, it doesn't really feel as if it's kind of conforming to the to the diary form. Um, but I you know I, I I can absolutely see why the the, the publishers have done it published it that way. Um, I've read the, you know, there's, and there's some, there's some interest in there. There are some revelations in there. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure they got a great uh, serialization deal from the mail. There is some interesting stuff in there, but whether it's joining the canon of uh, 
page political diaries is, is questionable. I well, and before I let you go, nobody knows the political canon quite as well as you, Martin. Your favourite political diaries? Oh, first volume, Alan Clark. Unbeatable. Unbeatable. I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, Clark is the absolute doyen, I think. Uh, Honourable mentions, I think, for Chris Mullin and others, but, you know, nothing beats Clark. He's the master of the form. And Alistair Campbell as well, I think. So that first volume of the Blair years was also very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I commend those two listeners too. That was Martin Redfern, literary agent and executive director of North Bank Talent, who's read uh, and edited and sold many a political memoir and diary in his time. Now, another person who's done plenty of that, who's read and reviewed uh, just about every political diary going, is the one and only Michael Crick, the distinguished political journalist and the former political editor of Channel 4 News and the BBC's Newsnight and someone who's read many political diaries in his time. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Um, what then, given that we've heard uh, perhaps the qualities that Matt Hancock's diaries perhaps don't have, or indeed Matt Hancock's uh, retrospective memoir written in diary form, we should say, um, what is the creme de... You know, what sets a... a political diary, a timeless political diary like Alan Clark's apart from any number of, uh, of also-rans in this crowded field? Well, uh, accuracy and honesty and wit and style and humour and being a great public record. Um, and, I mean, my favourite diaries are the Ben diaries. Uh, I think there are nine volumes mm. stretching over 50 years and I've used them on several occasions for books I've done, uh, simply because they're, you know, they are a, a good account of what's going on. Ben is amazingly honest uh, about himself and about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the politics that he's immersed in. You really get a great picture of him as a politician. I mean, a lot depends on when the diaries are written. Uh, I mean, in, 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 from the 60s, we've got three diaries from the, the Wilson government. You've got uh, Crossman was the big one to start with, and there was a huge legal kerfuffle and, the, and uh, the cabinet office and the government trying to stop him publishing it. And in the end, he and the Sunday Times won. But the trouble with Crossman was he wrote them at the weekend, uh, which was several days after the events. So his memory wasn't as good as those diarists that do it late at night, uh, as Ben and Car Barbara Castle, the other big diarist, from the 60s did. Those have got to be much more accurate. And even and with the days course, removed, Michael, hindsight yeah. begins to creep in and you're exactly. already reassessing. And well, it, I mean, even with a few hours removed, frankly, but you can't sit there writing your diary <laughs> all day. And of course, the other thing you've got to do is not tell anybody that you're doing a, a diary. As soon as you tell your cabinet colleagues you're doing a diary or, or tell anyone, frankly, uh, they're going to be careful what they say to you uh, and uh, you know they're going to avoid you and you're not going to get any material. The other real problem is that for diarists is that on the really big days, the really historic days, they're going to be so incredibly busy and probably knackered that late at night, they're, they're not going to have time to do the, the, the day justice. And on those days when uh, they have got time to do it justice, because uh, not much is going on, there's nothing to say. And therefore, so it's always this great dilemma. I find it personally, I've done a personal diary uh, for 51 years since I was, uh, what, 12, 13. And uh, not that it, every, anybody would ever want to publish it in a million years. It's absolute rubbish. But uh, the, 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 so the quality can vary, uh, very hugely. But I, I love the Mullin diary. I love the Ben diary. Uh, the Alistair Campbell diaries, actually, I, I've only dipped into it. I haven't really got round to uh, reading them yet because they are monumental. I mean, what's Alistair up to? About seven volumes by now. 
the one diary, the one set of diaries that if I was a publisher, I would do go out hammer and tongs to get published are the Norman St. John Stevens diaries. Norman St. John Stevens, you may recall, was a, uh, you know, a, a leading conservative in the 60s, 70s mm. and 80s. He was briefly a cabinet minister under Margaret Thatcher, but he also had huge royal connections. And I reckon those diaries and uh, I've, uh, you know, I've heard a little bit about them. Uh, th those diaries would be dynamite, but they need publishers need to get on because there'll come a point where nobody's ever heard of Norman St. John Stevens anymore, and nobody's really interested in people like Princess Margaret and the Queen Mother and the Queen that he writes about in those diaries. And they're also incredibly difficult to decipher because they're in uh, illeg very difficult to read, uh, illegible, a bit like Alan Clark, actually, I think, uh, handwriting. But that that is the big diary prize for some publisher to get out there. The trouble is, I think that uh, Norman St. John Seavis's um, lover who inherited them uh, doesn't want them to be published, uh, which is very sad because, you know, they are going to be a great historic source. And that's the other thing about these diaries. They're not just for publication. They are huge of huge benefit to future historians who can go back and compare different accounts mm. of what went on at the same meeting. And they're so much more valuable than what people say in memoirs, which are written years later and people can't really remember or they, they think they remember. And we all know that we think we remember what went on. Uh, but when you go and actually compare it with the record, the, the stuff that was written that night or recorded that night in many cases these days. Um, and indeed, Crossman recorded them on, on old fashioned quarter inch audio tape in the 1960s. When you go back and compare the record, uh, it's the you know the the, the diary win, has to win uh, virtually every time. Although people can be a bit naughty and ch change them a bit, but I think and one of the great things about Alan D Duncan's diaries is the honesty about it, and he's you know the way in which he he, he really lets the, puts on record his feelings about what's going on and colleagues and other people. I mean, he, he annoyed a lot of people, of course, in the process of doing that. But there is a an honesty about it, as indeed there is with Clark and Mullin and Ben. And uh, I think that is the candour and honesty is really the, the vital thing. And just briefly before I let you go, Michael, do you get candour, honesty and a worthy addition from the historical record to the historical record from Matt Hancock's retrospective diaries, do you think? Uh, well, I haven't read them yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your your <laughs> best guess? haven't looked at... I, I, there'll be some great stories in there. Mm. Uh, and uh, there are some great stories in there, clearly. Um, but uh, I just think this process... I mean, it started, I think, with Piers Morgan of sort of going back and reconstructing it as a diary. I think it's a bit naughty. I mean, you just need to make it clear that that's what you've done. And that is not as, as, as you know, authoritative and as uh, accurate, I don't think, as actually doing it day by day, night by night, you know, up until one o'clock or two in the morning, recording or writing it all out. Um, and uh, but I'll, you know, I'll give them the benefit. Of the, I'll uh, I'll wait till I've read them. Uh, they, they, you know, they may be they may be excellent, and certainly they're about a very important part in our history. That was our big thing at 11 o'clock. You heard from Sir Alan Duncan, the former Conservative Minister, Martin Redfern, the literary agent and editor, and Michael Crick, the veteran political journalist. That's all from me this week on the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'll be back in January. Matt Shawley will be back on Monday. But don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 